Hello, everybody. Welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book In My Father's House by Corey Tinboom, with permission of Light Trails Publishing and the Tinboom Foundation. And we are on Chapter 7, 17, and so much to learn. When Betsy told a story, she wove threads of brilliant color through the word picture she created. When she moved into a room or dressed for a meeting, it was with a special flair. She knew the art of living. I wasn't what people would call a mature teenager. I was a tomboy during my adolescence, not a young lady. However, I loved imitating and wanted to learn, but it didn't seem possible to me that I would ever have those soft qualities of womanhood, which were so natural to my older sister. Betsy taught me many things, and one of them was how to tell a story. She had a Sunday school class for many years that she started to teach when she was 17. She loved her pupils, and the little gifts and adoring glances she had from those boys and girls proved that her love was returned many times. One day she said to me, Corey, you must take a class too. What can I teach, I asked, thinking how embarrassed I would be if someone asked me a question and I couldn't answer. There was so much I didn't understand, especially all those kings and judges and the battles in the Old Testament. Betsy's answer was, try it. Tell the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Now there was a story I knew. So I went with her to her class, believing this was a very simple assignment. What an embarrassment. How inadequate I felt when I finished the story in five minutes. The class was 30 minutes long, and I didn't know how to fill the remaining time. Betsy took it over, and I listened with amazement as she told the same story over to a spellbound class of children. I was rather discouraged. I didn't know how to tell a story, but after that experience, I was determined to learn. As I listened to Betsy, I realized that you must weave a tale, leading your listeners on a word journey. A friend of mine, Mina, was a teacher in a Christian school, and she promised to help me. We asked permission of the director of the school to allow me to give the Bible story in her class every Monday morning. They were pretty drab at first. But gradually, I began to learn how to add those imaginary touches, which made them so interesting. I used the technique of describing one picture after another, leading my little class through the art gallery of the Bible. When I told the story of the feeding of the 5,000 again, we pictured Jesus with all the people sitting on the grass around him. We would look at these people individually, imagining where they lived, what sort of problems they had, and what they might be thinking about this man with a divine love in his eyes. The next pictures of Jesus and his followers, the disciples, talking about how the tired, hungry people were going to be fed. There was no bakery or fish market within sight, but there was an obvious need for food. The blue waters of Galilee reflected the surrounding green and brown hills, and the luxuriant grass where the people sat to listen to Jesus was flattened by the crowd. Then I would carry my listeners with me to the climax. As Jesus took the five loaves and two fish offered him by a boy who had gone shopping for his mother and looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fishes divided among them all. And they did all eat and were filled. Mark 6, 41 and 42. What a feast we have when we believe Jesus Christ, I would end. I had no idea how valuable this lesson was going to be in later life. If Betsy had told me that someday I would be speaking before thousands of people, I'm sure that the fear of such a thing would have silenced my clumsy efforts at storytelling immediately. From Bach with Love
Music was as much a part of my young life as television is to the children of today. Mother and Tante Annie had taught kindergarten, and I can remember their singing to me the little songs they taught to their school children. When I was old enough to sit at the organ called the harmonium and pump the pedals with my feet, Tante Jans had arranged for one of her military visitors to give Noli and me music instructions. We loved to sing in our house. Noli had a rich soprano voice, William sang tenor, and I was the alto when we learned to sing the Bach choral Sevan de Vel. I grew up loving Bach. One time, Father called us together and said, We're going to sing at St. Bavo tomorrow evening for a great treat. I couldn't imagine anything that could be better than some of the concerts we had already enjoyed at Uncle Arnold's church. Because of Uncle Arnold's position as caretaker, we were given special permission to listen to the concerts. Sitting on the bench beside the door, which separated his home from the main sanctuary, only the people who had money could afford to attend these fine concerts, and without Uncle Arnold, all the members of the Ten Boom family would seldom have been able to enjoy such riches. Wear your warm clothes, Mama warned as we were getting ready for the mysterious treat. St. Bavo was a vast, unheated building with foot warmers for those who could afford to pay, and hard wooden bench with cold stone at our backs for Uncle Arnold's relatives. We all lined up, excited over the anticipation of Father's great treat, and went to the cathedral. By passing the front entrance and going in the side door to our own special reserved seats, the smell of the moisture and dust, the smoldering gas lamps and the burning coals and the foot warmers were so familiar and the excitement began to build. We sat down with Father wrapping a wool blanket around Mother and placing a pillow at her back to make her more comfortable. A wiry man with unruly gray hair and a drooping mustache passed us before going upstairs to the world-famous pipe organ. I had explored the area where this impressive organ stood and wondered how anyone could learn to play on so many manuals with 68 stops. We had been told that Mozart played that organ when he was only 10 years old. We soon knew why the evening was going to be such a treat. I had held my breath as Albert Schweitzer began playing a Bach prelude. He was an authority on organ building and an organist who could fill the cathedral with exquisite beauty. During the day, St. Bavo was a composition in gray, inside and out. But in the evening, with the gas lights giving a rampantesque light, the pillars pointed upwards in a mysterious glow, and the atmosphere of Harmony was heaven. I thought eternity must contain this kind of beauty. As Albert Schweitzer's frame grew throughout the world, I often thought of the first time I heard him interpret Bach and how much Father's treat contributed to my lifetime love of music. Impatient to learn patience. We are not born with patience, and I believe God began to teach me something of what this means when I was in my 17th year. Because I was the youngest of the family, I remained childlike for a long time. I loved life intensely, charged with the desire to cram every available experience into each day. Then came a terrible blow, which depressed me so severely I thought I wouldn't survive. For some weeks I had a slight fever. For a time I managed to disguise how I felt, but soon Mama began to see my listless attitude and called the doctor. He probed and tapped, listened and questioned and then told me I had tuberculosis. Death sentence. So young, I thought. Why would God want me with him when there is so much for me to do on earth? You must go to bed, Corey, until the fever is gone, the doctor pronounced. In those days, tuberculosis was as fearful as cancer is now. 
I cried and went upstairs slowly, not looking back. It was the middle of the day, and it seemed strange to undress and go to bed. I cried to the Lord, Why must I be ill, Lord? I will live. I will be healthy. It took many days before I could surrender and accept the situation. I surely had to learn what it says in Colossians 1. Strengthen with all might, according to his glorious power, unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us to meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Verses 11 and 12. Through my tears and anger, I would thank him, but I couldn't understand why he wanted me to lie in bed, imprisoned by the walls of my little room. At first, many visitors came upstairs, but after several months had passed, some people forgot me. I began to feel more self-pity and rebellion, but I prayed every day for peace in my heart, and finally the moment came when I could say, Lord, you know best. At that time, William was a theological student at the University of Leiden. He was going to have an examination in church history and often came home on weekends. I get things in my head if I teach them. How about it, Corey? If I give you some books, will you study them? It was not the first time I had to assist him in that way. To earn some money in his college time, he gave lessons in Latin to a boy who was a very unwilling pupil. Every morning from 7 till 8 o'clock, he taught him. I joined the two of them. If the boy didn't listen and was absolutely uncooperative, Then William taught me Latin. I enjoyed those lessons, and I knew that my brother was a good teacher. I gained a great love for church history during those months of my confinement, and it took my thoughts away from my illness. The doctor did not visit me much. Rest was the only cure he knew, and he told the family not to allow me to get out of bed until there was no sign of fever. One day he passed my room after visiting Tante Betts, who was very old and feeble, and I called him. Doctor, I have a pain in my abdomen right here, I said, pressing my fist on my right side. He examined me and found an appendix infection, which was probably the cause of my fever all that time. I don't think anyone has ever been so happy with appendicitis. After five months of confinement, I left my bed, had a minor operation, and returned to the wonderful outside world. In the world, but not of it. Until that time in my life, the outside world was very small. It consisted of streets and alleys in Harlem, with only brief excursions with Father to Amsterdam and an occasional visit to a neighboring village to visit friends. I began to want to be somebody outside the protection of the Bayer, to learn about the world that existed away from the Bartoljolerstraat. I didn't dream that I could see some of the countries and people that I had read about in my geography book but at least I wanted to experience life outside of the shop. Was I wrong? I struggled with this ambition and decided to ask my Bible teacher, Mrs. Van Limit, who was a very understanding woman who counseled well. She said, Corey, it's a very natural for you to feel the way you do. You can do something in the world through the power of the Lord. The first thing I did was to launch into intensive study of many subjects. I received diplomas in home economics, child care, needlepoint, and others. It proved to be a good background for my first job. My opportunity came to be out in the world. I heard about a job from one of the girls at school. The Bruins, who had a magnificent home, needed an en for their little girl. This position was a combination governess and companion, and I knew this was what Tante Betts had done in her youth and she had become a very lonely and rather dour old woman. 
but this didn't quench my original enthusiasm for what I thought would be a new adventure in living. Father and mother gave their permission, and I packed my few clothes in a little suitcase and left with great anticipation for Zanfort, a village by the sea, about ten miles from Harlem. The contrast between my home and my new job began with my first glimpse of the home. It was so big. How could just one family live in a house that size? As I began my job, I tried very hard to please the entire family. At home, I'd always known fun and laughter with a large dose of love and affection. Out in the world, it wasn't the same. For the first time, I was faced with a new way of thinking, a different kind of family life than I had ever experienced. If this was the way to be somebody, I wasn't sure it was what I wanted. Thursday was my day off, and it was such a relief to go back to Harlem for my catechism lessons. Going home each week only made me realize the contrast between the security of our family and life in the outside world. In some ways, it was confusing to me. I had determined to do my very best as an au pair. I wanted to leave often, but I was not a quitter, so I stayed. One day, however, William came to Sanport with the news that our oldest aunt, Tante Betts, had died. She had been an invalid in our home for many years, and Tante Anna had the full responsibility of nursing after I left. Now Villian told me that Tante Anna was very tired and should have a long rest. I told my employer that I must leave at once because I was needed at home. Freedom at last. In my heart, I wanted to rejoice that I was going home, but under the circumstances, it really didn't seem the proper thing to do. As William took my little bag and we walked away from that house of luxury, I felt no regret. William said, let's go down to the beach. It's such a glorious day. And then he began to sing Bach music very loudly. Somehow I felt it was all right to rejoice inside, but I didn't think it was right to let it show. William, how do you do such a thing? Auntie Betts has died and you shouldn't be acting so happy. Of course we should be happy, Corey. A child of God is a citizen of heaven, and the attitude of a Christian must be one of praise when a believer has died. Our grief for Tante Betts would not be just one of selfishness on our part, but of grieving for the sake of ourselves. I knew he was right, and we arrived at the Bayet. It was with our hearts at peace, with the knowledge of the glory of Tante Betts' new home in heaven. How good it was to be home. There was a harmony there which was such a contrast to the rich home of my former employer. I realized then why Tante Betts had the type of personality she had. Just a small taste of the life she had led gave me more understanding. We never know until we walk in someone else's shoes. The Everlasting Arms There are so many times when the problems of the moment, whether they're small or large, would overwhelm me. I remember a time not long after Tante Betts' death when mother became very ill. I was so worried about her. In addition, I knew there was a large bill which had to be paid within the next few days. People were not interested in buying watches at that time, and father and I were sitting in the dining room talking things over. I stared at the familiar red and black tablecloth, which had seen happy and sad times. I felt so depressed. Everything was wrong, and there didn't seem to be any good thing which could come out of such a discouraging situation. Father... What must we do? Everything is so terrible. Don't forget, Corey. Underneath us are the everlasting arms. We won't fall. I didn't know that expression, and I asked, Is that in the Bible? It certainly is. Moses spoke those words to the son of Israel. 
How does that help us right now? I asked rebelliously. Girl, it makes all the difference. Moses tells us in the book of Deuteronomy that God is a dwelling place. We have the promise of security when his arms are underneath us, holding us, supporting us, strengthening us. Thirty years later, I was lying in a dirty mattress in a concentration camp. It was pitch dark, and in that restless room, Betsy lay so close to me that I could feel her heart beat. It was irregular and feeble. I tried to think of something comforting to say to her before we fell asleep, and suddenly I remembered the dining room, the red and black tablecloth, and Father saying in his calm voice, Underneath are the everlasting arms. Betsy, are you asleep? No, not yet, she said weakly. Remember what Father told us? God is our dwelling place. Underneath are the everlasting arms. I can't be sure, but I believe she must have smiled in that black barracks. Oh, yes, Corey, and they will never leave us. Well, next time we will do Chapter 8, The Best is Yet to Be. I love you. I'm praying for you. And bye-bye for now.